0: Our second reading this morning is Numbers chapter 26, verses 52 through 65. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, the land will be divided and given to these people. Each tribe will get enough land for all the people who were counted. A large tribe will get much land, and a small tribe will get less land. The land that they get will be equal to the number of people who were counted. But you must use lots to decide which tribe gets which part of the land. Each tribe will get its share of the land, and that land will be given to the name of that tribe. Land will be given to each tribe, large and small, and you will throw lots to make the decisions. They also counted the tribe of Levi. These are the family groups from the tribe of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These are the family groups from the tribe of Levi, Libnite, Hebronite, Malite, Mushite, and and Korahite, I'm sorry. Amram was from the Kohath family group. Amram's wife was named Jochebed. She was also from the tribe of Levi. She was born in Egypt. Amram and Jochebed had two sons, Aaron and Moses. They also had a daughter, Miriam. Aaron was the father of Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died. They died because they made an offering to the Lord with fire that was not allowed. The total number of males one month or older from the tribe of Levi was 23,000. But these men were not counted with the other Israelites. They did not get a share of the land that the Lord gave to the other people. Moses and Eleazar the priest counted all these people. They counted the Israelites while they were in the Jordan Valley in Moab. This was near the Jordan River across from Jericho. Many years before, in the desert of Sinai, Moses and Aaron the priest counted the Israelites. But all these people were dead. Not one of them was still alive, because the Lord told them that they would all die in the desert. The only two men who were left alive were Caleb son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. doesn't work then. Oh, there we go. There are two ends to this cable. All right. You ready? All right. Um, wow. That's like really loud. Is it all right back there? Like I'm like really hearing myself. I like to hear myself, but not too much. (laughs) Not too much. All right. Um, uh, Pastor Bruno, it's good to have you back. my joy. Pastor Bruno was down at the beach this week, relaxing, okay? Every once in a while, the pastor does need to go away, but he's here uh, in worship this Sunday, and then you're going to go back down to the beach to relax for another week, and then he'll be back up on on next Sunday. Um, Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father God, you have us in the palm of your hand. You have known us while we were being knit together in our mother's wombs. Lord, we come to you this day in faith and in trust, trusting that you have a word for us this day. We uh, ask that as we listen to your word, proclaim that our hearts would be attentive to uh, what it is that you would have us know and what it is that you would have us do. And I pray that the power of the holy spirit which inspired these words to be written so long ago that they might illuminate our hearts and minds this morning this i pray in jesus name amen amen so when uh, a new pope is elected the college of cardinals meets and they choose one of their own to be the new pontiff the new king of the worldwide Roman Catholic Church. There are only 222 cardinals uh, in the entire world so it is an extremely exalted status with extraordinary power and privilege but you can imagine that when a sitting Pope begins to fade Whenever it seems like a new election might be around the corner, that each of the princes of the church might begin to think to himself, you know, I'd be a pretty good pope myself. And when the election happens and it doesn't come out, their way, I suppose the disappointed cardinals have to muster the fake smiles and enthusiasm for the winner that you see on the faces of the runners up at the Miss America pageant. Even if we are cardinals, princes of the church, even if we are runners up at the Miss America pageant, we are tempted to want more, as high as we might be. On the ladder of life, we still want something beyond where we are. We are high up on the ladder of life, but we know that there's someone who is yet higher than us. This morning I want to talk to you about contentment. I want to talk to you about a prince of the church who learned to be happy as a church janitor. I want to talk to you about Korah and the descendants of Korah. Back in Numbers chapter 16 we read about Korah, a cousin of Moses and Aaron who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korah gathered around him 250 other men and they tried to oust Moses and Aaron from power. They had the usual complaints that we've heard throughout the book of Numbers. Oh, things were so great back in Egypt. And you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Where is that land of milk and honey that you promised? But the rebellion was more than just nostalgia for the past or grumbling about the present. It was also about envy and jealousy and a desire for control. It was about who got to do what and who was in charge. God responded to Korah's rebellion with an earthquake, with a fire, and with a plague. First, Korah and his entire household were swallowed up in an earthquake. And then 250 of his supporters were killed by a fireball that falls out of heaven. And then 14,700 children of Israel are destroyed in a plague. After smiting the people... God then reaffirms his call on the life of Aaron by having Aaron's walking stick bud. Well, it didn't only bud, it also produced flowers and and almonds. Korah and the rebels grasped after something that didn't belong to them. Korah and the rebels coveted what God had given to someone else. If we want to live a life that is pleasing to God, we must be content with what we have. Let me say that again. If we want to live a life pleasing to God, we must be content with what we have. The 10th commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Apostle Paul instructing the young Timothy says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Contentment says, this is what I have this is what God has given me, and I'll be satisfied with it. Contentment says, this is what I have, this is what God has given to me, and I know that God has been good to me. Grumbling, of course, is a sure sign that we lack contentment. At some point in their history, the children of Israel are living in Egypt, and they're Complaining about being slaves. They're well fed, but they're slaves and they cry out to God and God hears their complaint and so God pulls them out of slavery and He puts them out in the wilderness so they're no longer slaves. But the food's not very good. And so they begin to complain about the food. Let's go back to Egypt. At least we had onions and cucumbers in Egypt. Maybe being a slave wasn't so bad. Envy Also, is a sign of our lack of contentment. Maybe you think that the Israelites were right to grumble because they had it so tough. But you'll observe that people who seemingly have everything can still complain with the best of them. They have more than they need, but they're unhappy because they don't have everything. Envy and grumbling really are... The same thing. And there is no way for us to please God when we are envious or when we are grumbling about our circumstances because grumbling and envy show our lack of contentment and our lack of contentment shows our lack of trust in what God has provided and what God has ordained for us. We can go back to the Garden of Eden if you want. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had everything they needed. Who knows how many plants were in the Garden of Eden there for them to eat. But there was one plant, just one plant, that was off limits. So what do they want? They want that one plant. What are they unhappy about? The fact that they can't have this one plant. That's discontented, grumbling, envy. I don't need that fruit, I'm perfectly fine without that fruit, but because I don't have that fruit, I cannot rest at ease. That's the insanity of envy. Compared with how people live around the world today, compared with how people lived in other times, compared to even You know, with how things were when I was growing up, you and I are absolutely choking on an abundance of riches, a glut of stuff and money and entertainment, and still we are tempted to be discontent with what we have. What's that all about? Now, maybe you say, I'm not greedy, but I have some real trouble in my life. You don't expect me to be happy with the difficulties I have in my life. It's just wrong to say, isn't it, Pastor, that I should be content even in the midst of my problems? A funny thing happens in our lives... When we begin to understand with our heart and with our guts, and not just with our head, a funny thing happens in our lives when we begin to understand that God has us in His hand and that our present circumstances are part of God's work in our lives. you got trouble? Well, there's no refining without a fire. You've got difficulties? Well, there's no sanctification without mortification. you got problems? Well, there's no... Crown without a cross. When there are troubles and difficulties and problems in our lives, we need to be careful that we do not run away from the very thing that God sent to us for our own good. We need to be careful that we don't curse our bad luck when dealing with what is growing us up into mature Christians. We need to be careful that we don't shake our fist at God and say, how dare you let me suffer like this, when the present suffering is producing the patience that will not disappoint. Contentment is the ability to live in and be grateful for our lives, the very real lives that we have, It's a mixture of sweetness and sadness, a mixture of trouble and pleasure, a mixture of work and rest. Knowing that God is in control and that God has put us exactly where he wants us allows us to be content. If every time I have trouble, I decide to run, I will keep running till the day I die. If every time I have trouble, I grumble, I will grumble till the day I die. If every time I see what someone else has and am envious because I have less, I will be discontent till the day that I die. And in all of my running and in all of my grumbling and in all of my envy, I will dishonor God by saying that He is not able to supply my needs. By saying that he is not a good father who gives good gifts. By saying that God is unjust and not worthy of my praise. But, if we are content, like the Apostle Paul who said, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. If we are content, then every moment of our lives becomes another moment where God is present and is giving us the strength and the meaning and the purpose that we need to move forward. Contentment can be transformational. So many of us are out to change the world thinking that if I can only shape this world to fit my vision of how it should be then I can be happy. But. We're not called to change the world in Scripture. We're called to change our hearts and our minds. You remember what Paul says to the Romans. I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed. Changed. By the renewing of your mind. Korah was not content with the place that God had put him in. Korah was not content with God's assignment in the nation of Israel. In fact, Korah had a very exalted place. He was a cousin of the big honchos, Moses and Aaron. He was a Levite. He had responsibility in the tabernacle, but still he wasn't content. He wanted more. He grumbled about, what little that he had and he was bitter and jealous of what had been given to others and the result was dishonoring to God and so God unleashes death and destruction Korah's rebellion is part of the backstory of our reading from Numbers chapter 26 this morning the children of Israel they're on the doorstep of entering into the promised land and God has ordered that another census be taken. There had been a census 40 years earlier at Mount Sinai. The purpose of that census was to figure out just how many soldiers were available for battle. The census also helped determine which territories would go to the different tribes. The bigger tribes got bigger territories. Because a census was taken at the beginning... And at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, we have an idea about how the wandering in the wilderness affected the different tribes. And I want to just focus on the descendants of Korah because they get called out for special attention in verses 8 through 11. Here's what we read a little bit earlier. Oh, I've got to read the Hebrew names now. No, that's all right. (laughs) Okay, Palu's son son was Eliab. Eliab had three sons, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abraham. Remember, Dathan and Abriam were the two leaders who turned against Moses and Aaron. They followed Korah when Korah turned against the Lord. That was the time when the earth opened and swallowed Korah and all of his followers and 250 men died. That was a warning to all the Israelites. But the other people who were from the family of Korah did not die. Which is why they show up in the census. Okay, God could have eliminated the whole line, but he has mercy on the line of Korah. Notice that phrase, that this was a warning to all of the Israelites. The death of the rebels was a warning to the rest of the community. And you'll recall that the death was an extraordinary death. It was a weird death, just so that people would notice. So God's like mulling this over. How are we going to kill these people? And you know, it's not good enough to kill them with a plague. It's not good enough to kill them by the sword. Actually, the earth is going to have to open up. Oh, we'll know that this one has come from God. And so the death is sent against these people in a special way so that everyone else in the community will stand up and take notice. God does not only save individuals. God also saves the whole nation. He saves the whole church of Jesus Christ. And sometimes individuals will die in God's plan for the good of the larger body. Okay? That's just the truth. Now some of us are going to have a hard time with that because maybe it doesn't seem fair. But anyone who has ever been in war knows that this is a reality. That there can be a calculated decision taken that a certain number will die for the greater good. And so these die, these followers of Korah, die in an extraordinary way as a warning to the rest of the community for their good and for their preservation. And these things were written and preserved for us for our good. The things that happened to Korah are a warning for us today. This is why they were recorded in scripture and preserved down through the centuries. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So if you're wondering why these crazy stories in the Old Testament are written, eh, it's for us. Okay? The full implication of what's going on in the history of Israel doesn't make sense until after Christ those things were written for the church so that we would take instruction out of them. So let's not neglect the instruction of the Lord. The death of Korah and all of his rebel followers was a warning to the rest of the people of God. Of course it's bad for Korah that he dies, but The warning is good for Israel. So let's finish talking about now the descendants of Korah. Let's talk about the people who did not die, but who survived from that line. These would be the individuals who knew in a special way the story of God's wrath against their rebellious ancestors. Imagine, growing up as an Israelite, You've got it as your surname, Korah. I'm Daniel Korah. Yeah, yeah, my great-grandfather. He was the rebel. Okay? You would always have that before your mind. These people knew who they had come from. Korah has descendants. Not all of them die. And because not all of them die, this story is preserved and survived and lived on in the community because there was an opportunity... For the descendants of Korah to be redeemed. It works out in the end. Thanks be to God. They are redeemed and they're redeemed because the descendants give up their envy and they become content with God's provision in their lives. The descendants of Korah continued to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle that was their job, but guess what? They were never the big shots they were just the supporting crew, they were the stage crew, they were the people behind the scenes, they were the people not in the limelight they were the people who didn't get the glory and from that place they served God and they served the people of God and they worshipped God with their service And remarkably, from that position in the back, as a stage crew member, they were granted the privilege of composing 11 of the psalms that appear in Scripture today. And I just want to read a couple of psalms for you. The first one is Psalm 42. That was our opening psalm this morning. We also sang it. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And in this psalm, you hear the longing and the desire and the thirst of these people to be near God, to be with God, to gather for worship with God. It's as if Sunday can't come soon enough for them. When can I go and meet with God? The longing for power and the longing for control... And the longing for status and the longing for position destroyed Korah. But the longing for God revived his descendants. Psalm 46 is another psalm that was written by the descendants of Korah. In that psalm we hear these words, God is our refuge and our strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountain fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty, he is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When our lives are driven by ambition and envy, we will never know peace. But when we are content with what God has provided, when we are still and know that God is our God and that we are not God, then all of hell can break loose around us and we're going to be fine. We are going to be steady as a rock. We're going to be cool as a cucumber, unflappable, unshakable, unmovable. And finally, one of the most beautiful psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 84, which sings, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow, has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty, listen to me, God of Jacob, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So where is your dwelling place? Where's your nest Have you found a home? It's better to be a doorkeeper or a janitor in the house of the Lord and the church of Jesus Christ than to live in any palace that we can build with our own hands. Amen. Let us pray. Let us see your glory, Lord. Turn our eyes from the foolishness of this world. Let us trade contentment in you for our envy of our neighbor. Father God, I ask that we would find our fullness and our sufficiency in you. May we be filled and full of joy and overflowing. And may we in our contentment and our satisfaction with you bring you honor and glory that you deserve. Father God, forgive us where we have been discontent in pursuing our own agendas. Forgive us for not trusting you with Your provision in our lives, Lord, I know that our lives have trouble. And we've got difficulties. But you have promised to be the one who provides for us, and you have. And so now teach our hearts to be childlike in our trust of you. May we know that all good things come from you because you are our loving Father. You have given us good things. Lord, may our feet rest on the solid rock of Jesus. May our trust not be in ourselves. May we weather the storms of our lives and all of the noise and tumult that is all around us. May it not bother us. May we be rock steady, satisfied, content in you, Lord, I pray that our hearts would long to worship you. I pray that we would not neglect the meeting of the saints. I pray that you would continue to wet our appetite for that day when we will be in your presence rejoicing forever. Lord, we ask that you would be honored and glorified in our worship of you this day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.